Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, we're about to delve into the explosive implosion that AI and machines are having on blue chip brands and their conventional approach to content production and creation. It's a little mind bending, but the need for brands to generate content across a crazy number of digital channels and owned media assets and the volume that comes with it has risen upwards of 2000% in the past five years. So on any given day, the need for marketers to feed a conventional TV campaign, social media, personalized digital ads, customer experience journeys, e-commerce shop fronts, marketplaces and other brand-owned media assets is almost out of control. And surprisingly, most are not coping with the load or the cost. So enter AI, CGI and hybrid studios that are now being used to reinvent how creative and content is done at scale for Hollywood and marketing. So on the mics today are two blokes at the front end of what looks like nothing less than the revolution we've been told is coming. Richard Glasson is global CEO of WPP's booming content production firm, Hogarth, along with the Australian CEO, Justin Ricketts. Welcome to you both. There's some crazy stuff happening here in Australia and around the world, so let's get to it. Richard, um, uh, before we get into this fascinating upheaval uh, that's underway in content creation with AI and machines and all that sort of um, jazz, give us the global view on what's happening with brands and marketers and around content and all the things they're doing. It is fascinating what's going on. There's some huge stuff happening, right? And welcome, Richard. Thank you, Paul, and good to be talking to you. Yeah, there's a massive amount going on at the moment, and we would see it broadly as falling into um, two key areas. One is how do we bring like incredible efficiency and innovation to ways of making um, all of the existing types of content that clients need to produce, particularly in this world of mass personalization. And alongside that, there are all of these future areas that clients know they need to get into, whether that's Web3 and Metaverse, which, which I know, you know, people have mixed views on, but, but all of these areas. Including around, me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we can talk about that. But, but, um, you know, everything that we're thinking about in terms of, uh, modular content, creative intelligence, different ways of communicating with consumers, different ways of, understanding um, audiences and talking directly to those audiences in ways which feels authentic and engaging and relevant. And so, you know, essentially for our clients, they've just got a huge amount to be thinking about. And, you know, obviously our role is helping them navigate that world, you know, which is which is very much based around how, how do you produce the volume of content that you need to produce at the right quality at a cost which is achievable, whilst at the same time you are thinking about some of these future channels of communication. The conversations you're having globally are quite significant in that um, there's a cost and efficiency play to this, Richard, but there's also just the demand to produce so much content now across all these channels we talked about earlier is giving uh, brands quite a headache. And the way to deal with this is essentially what you're doing. So I guess um, give us an example of a brand, if you can talk about it, and what they've done in the last you know 12 months or a project of, of how this looks on the ground for how companies are dealing with it. So, I mean, we, we've got a saying within the company, which is that you can have... Uh, efficiency without effectiveness, but you can't have effectiveness without efficiency. And what we fundamentally mean by that is, is we get, we, we take our clients through this transformation approach, looking at how we are producing the volume of their work in order to be able to free up their budgets in order to be able to reinvest in more creativity and more paid media and, and more, more, you know, I guess more relevant targeting of their work. And so if we look at work we've done 
with a client such as Bayer, where we've taken an entirely modular approach to building their content, a really significant project over a sustained period of time, which means that we we now think about uh, every component of every single piece of communication, how they put together, you know, in a highly regulated environment, how they can live together, where they're allowed to appear, what country they can appear in. And so it's this sort of intelligent content approach, which then means that once you've brought efficiency to all of that communication, then you can, uh, you know, that frees up budget, that frees up the ability to reinvest in in the creative ideation and, and new and different forms of communication. And so we're doing that pretty much across our client base and, um, you know, it's no secret. Well, explain the modular content approach, Richard. Explain the modular content because this is sort of fundamental to how things used to be done versus how things are being done now in a, in a mass content producing world and what brands need. So what do you mean by modular content? How does that change what's been done? Yeah, so I think, I guess my starting point would be to say what it's not and what, what modular content isn't is what people might think of as, you know, templated communication, you know, because as soon as you right. think about that, you're thinking about unattractive, unappealing, uh, clunky words. Vanilla that, crap, yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's not that in the slightest. It's essentially what it is, is, you know, to take an example, if we think about a brand that wants to show up in social media in a way that talks, you know, in a relevant way to its consumers and its client base, You've got to show up in a way which feels natively correct in that channel. You've got, you know, it's not about cutting a 30-second TVC down into a six-second so it works in, you know, any given channel. It's about thinking about how people in that channel talk to each other, how they show up and how they expect a brand to show up. Because I think right. personalization in the past has, you know, felt a bit like being stalked around the internet. What what we're really focused on is, you know, the the best personalization or the best targeting is when you don't realize you're being targeted or that it's not being produced personal to you. But we're, you know, we're seeing the explosion in over the top TV and, you know, you know, addressable advertising, even in the world of, of broadcast television. And, you know, with, you know, Netflix are now going to start running advertising and there, you know, there are all these opportunities in the streaming services where you can target audiences very specifically. So fundamentally, coming back to the question, what we see that is, is, is we understand there are really two key moments. There's the moment of content capture when we're shooting and we can talk, you know, later about virtual production techniques and all of those sorts of things. But when we are creating that original content, so either shooting it or creating it in CG or, you know, animating it, you know, building that original content. But then when you do that, rather than thinking of that, of that moment of creation being linked to the production of a single TVC or a single set of campaign materials, you're trying to capture as much content as you possibly can so that that content can be compiled and put together and built in a way which means that it can be relevant to every channel, to every audience. And increasingly, you know, you might use AI and you might use elements of automation to put those assets together. But fundamentally, it's about making sure you've got all of the right content that you can put together in a way which will tell a story to the audience. We, we you know, again, one of the things we talk about internally is from storytelling to story living, you know, because our consumers or our clients' consumers, they spend an awful lot of time in these channels. And if you turn up in a clunky way, then then it's obvious and it, you know, and it, it's dissonant and it doesn't feel right and so it's all about how we build creative assets in a way which which feels natural and and which talks to people in a language they want to be spoken to in and justin you've just got some thoughts here yeah just to sort of build because we've been talking a lot to clients about sort of modular content and to simplify it when i'm talking to a client i talk about how do we take a a brand platform or a campaign long and deep so we're thinking up front when we're sort of planning 
um, primary production, sort of content capture? How do we take this idea long across a calendar, across seasons, across sales events, across cultural events? How do we plan longer? And when we think deep, it's how do we think about the content we're going to capture? How can we ensure we're catching content that's relevant to different audiences and different channels and different platforms? And if we do that, we can sort of amortize our investment in what becomes a bigger shoot to create I would argue, more engaging and more impactful content. And then we, if you like, get our teams that are constructing the advertising for different audiences and channels to leverage, if you like, machine learning and creative automation to then reuse and remix those assets to deliver the right message at the right time to the right audience. So it's it's a mindset shift that actually sees you invest more in the primary production that leverage, if you like, automation and offshoring and everyone else for the construction of those ads. Right. And I just want to go, and it's a good point, and primary production is really interesting. Richard, when, when we're talking about this now, let's get to the sexy bits around what you're seeing in London and globally, the, the arrival of uh, these virtual studios, these production studios. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with primary production and the use of CGI and AI and all that stuff that we've, you know, we've heard for a long time. If I'm right, it's actually here now. Like it's it's being deployed both clearly in a, a feature film context, but in an advertising marketing context and content, it's here, right? And you're seeing it, you're doing it. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. And I think, I mean, just to, you know, to really start with the basics on it, I think, you know, if we're, what, what we're seeing, you know, there's a huge amount in around London, around the, the, the south of England at the moment, there's this, a massive amount of building of these huge stages which are being built by people like Amazon Prime and Netflix and, as you say, the feature film companies. It's becoming, virtual production is becoming the default way of, of shooting and creating content. And to explain exactly what that is, everyone's familiar with green screen. So essentially, if you wanted to, if you weren't filming in a location where the, the environment provides all of the background, if you like, then, then you might shoot in green screen. And in green screen, essentially, you then, in post-production, you put the background in place and you do all the VFX. And, and that is a very slow, a very expensive and, um, and, and a not very natural process. And, you know, green screen was to solve problems about content capture. You know, what virtual production is, is essentially most of the work or the vast majority of the work comes up front. You pre-render these CG environments, which then get which either projected or, or more likely are on LED screens, which, which form the background of the studio environment that you're in, creating a very naturalistic feel and hugely reducing the need for post-production because because you're working within this LED environment, what that means is the lighting is much more natural and the shadows work and and you get much better performances out of actors because they can see the environment and they're not imagining what, what context they're in and where everything is. They can see it and they can feel it. And so so I, I think it opens up these huge opportunities and it, it opens up, you know, opportunities in, in, you know, I'd say fundamentally two different ways. One is, you know, when you're thinking about the mega productions, then... All of a sudden, you know, it can be dusk for twelve hours in a row, so so that you're not you're not constrained or limited by by you know that that moment of content capture. But also, you can you can set up impossible locations. You know, famously, you know, things like the Mandalorian. There's a was the original poster child for um for using virtual production in a, in a filmic context. And what you can now do with these environments is just extraordinary. But at the other end of the spectrum, 
we all have clients who who need to go back to the same set time and time again. Imagine a retail client that shoots advertising in store. Every time they do that, they have to close the store down or they have to do it overnight and, you know, bring in huge amounts of lighting and huge amounts of disruption. Or you have to shoot in a in a, in a home environment, which again is you know a really uncomfortable, unpleasant way of shooting because houses aren't set up to have all of this equipment in there and everyone gets overheated and ill-tempered and you know and it's just and, and you've only got a certain amount of time before the family come in and want you thrown out of the house again and it's really it's not a great yeah. way of, of, of filming and so so for those clients that have repeat locations or repeat sets you build that once you use it many times and you can just constantly refresh and keep keep new content so you know i think virtual production is certainly in the in the film and tv world it's become the go to the default way of producing work and i think the same thing's going to happen in advertising as well and it's spilling now into brand now justin i think you've just done some work or you got an example of this what you've done in australia around and this with walmart correct can you talk us through what that yeah so walmart came to us i mean it, it just setting the context yeah, wool growers um, have had a fairly tough, whatever it is, three to four years, floods, droughts, COVID, whatever else. And, and most of the advertising that Walmart generate goes overseas. I think it's, you know, it's our largest export or largest green export outside of all the dirty stuff we export from the ground. Right. Um, so I think the industry body, which is Walmart, wanted to create a campaign that made the, the wool growers in this market sort of feel a sense of sort of pride of what they've gone through. So, so we, we created a, a strategic platform, if you like, which was designed to celebrate both Australian wool and the people, the wool growers that create it. But they didn't have, yeah, this, this was, they didn't have a huge amount of budget. They didn't have a huge amount of time. And, and we needed to create quite an emotional film, if you like. Um, so the challenge that virtual production helped to solve was um, two of the scenes that were in the film were complex and technically expensive to shoot. So one was um, we were showcasing the undergarment that wool that firefighters typically use um, underneath there. It's the sort of inner protective layer. So the scene required would have required us creating a complex sort of fire inferno in rural Australia. Um, quite a complex scene, probably not ethically the thing we want to be creating right now. Yeah, starting a, a touch risky. Yeah, a, t- a touch risky. So yeah, what we were able to do, as Richard was talking about, was sort of bring we we created a virtual sort of CGI inferno, if you like, and we're able in, in a studio in Melbourne to recreate that scene. And not only were we able to sort of avoid, obviously, a, a, an on-location risky shoot, but we were also, yeah, the client was able to sort of see the final product. So there was no post-production done on that. They, what they saw in camera in the studio is effectively what you can see on air now. And then on the same day, we also needed to shoot quite a sort of an intimate scene of a mother looking after a baby in New York. Um, so again, typically, the old way of doing that, we would have flown a crew and a client and an agency and the creators all the way to New York to shoot that apartment. Again, we were literally able in one studio to shoot you know, a New York apartment, complex fire scene. And yeah, I think we went from sort of script and treatment to on air in less than two weeks. Um, and, and if you see the, or if you put a link um, to the spot, um, I, I will challenge any consumer to see that that was shot using virtual production. So it's, it's hyper-realistic. And yeah, again, so, so it's just a good example of, yeah, it, it sort of helped us deliver something that we would not have been able to deliver in the time and the budget available. But the other, the other use case, which we sort of have got with the wall campaign as well, is that because you can then swap out, if you like, different scenes and different scenarios, it also 
sort of opens up the opportunity for personalization because now we can shoot sort of high fidelity, high quality content with talent in a studio, but we can now shoot that talent in multiple scenarios by, by flipping, if you like, and switching what's on the, the LED wall. So we can now, uh, if you take Rich's example of a retailer, and this is something we're exploring for Woolworths, think about how we can now shoot content in a store, but we can have different stores representing, yeah, they, yeah they've got their core stores, their value stores, their high-end stores. Um, we can now localize content to different states um, and whatever else. So there's a, an efficiency play enabling you to do things that usually would take uh, a lot of time and a lot of travel um, or else. And there's also an effectiveness play where we can now actually create content that can be more personalized to channel and, and audience. It's extraordinary, really. Richard, how, I mean, this fun, all of this, how far are we away from an industry globally essentially running this way? Because it challenges the fundamentals of how content has been created full stop and when we start seeing this. So are we at an early stage deployment or are we now seeing that brands and companies like you are sort of running at this at pace and we may see some really significant shifts in the next two to three, five years? I don't know. I think we're going to see some very significant shifts very quickly. If you look at Wreck-It, Ben Kieser have come out um, openly saying that they want 80% of all of their production to be um, made using virtual production in the next Mm. year. We're seeing other wow, other, right. other major brands are following this route as well. For all of the advantages that Justin talks about, it just makes sense. And it's also, you know, post-pandemic, a lot of um, clients and, and a lot of, you know, people in our industry have thought about the amount of travel that's happening, about, you know, the, the effect on the environment. You know, the, we, the virtual production is also highly sustainable production. It cuts down on carbon emissions. It cuts down on travel. You know, it's if you take cost as a proxy for the amount of pollution that we're putting out when we, when we make work, then then virtual production has to be the answer. And I think we're going to see brands moving towards it very quickly indeed. And um, I, I think what that is then going to drive is, I think there's a very exciting moment, certainly for us as a business, but within the industry as a whole, where essentially, if you you know, if you go back to the early days of filmmaking, when you when when they were shooting, I don't know, you know, shooting a, a film in the 1950s, what you saw in the camera was pretty much what appeared on the big screen, and and the, and the time from shooting to getting feature films made wasn't wasn't two years of post production. It was, you know, shoot it, finish it, put it out there, and it was, um, and I think that sense of bringing creating and making closer together is super exciting for us and the idea that we can be producing work which is going live within a couple of weeks of of, of that content being captured is it creates all these sorts of opportunities and so there's a challenge for creatives in here because creatives I think need to be you know the same if, if you take an analogy I think you know in the early days of digital communication you needed to have quite a good understanding of what the digital platforms allowed you to do from a technical perspective in order to think about how you might produce work which was as um, engaging and as effective as it possibly could be. I think it's incumbent on people working in creative agencies to really understand what this technology can do, to understand the potential it creates, to to think about how that might inform their, their campaign ideas or their brand ideas. Because I think if we if it's just simply... You know, we think about production as being after the ideation, after the storyboard, after the script, after after everything signed off, and then it just goes off and gets made. Then we're missing a massive opportunity there. And clients won't thank us for it. Clients will want us to be thinking in that much more, I guess, joined up way. And, you know, I guess final point on that would be that, you know, I, I think this creates huge new creative opportunities and, and all of the creatives shouldn't see this as a something that limits their um, ability to produce incredible work. I think it multiplies their ability to produce 
amazing work. But to do that, you have to understand what is possible within this technology. It really is fascinating. I guess, and, and the sectors that are driving this, um, Justin talked about Woolies and retail and financial services that have big volume. Are they the sectors that are sort of the lead of this, Richard, globally, or who's who's driving it? I think you can you can find a use case across pretty much uh, any category, if you like. You know, we're doing a lot with automotive. Often when, you know, you're producing car communications, right. the, car, the cars, you can't fly them around the world for confidentiality reasons, or they haven't even been built yet. And so you can use CG. We, we did a the launch of um, of the new electric Rolls Royce in an entirely virtual environment, for example, CPG, where you know if you take a brand like Nestle that in in their infant nutrition, you know that they'll be shooting in in similar locations time and time and time again in a household location. But you know, again, imagine in that virtual production, then you don't need to be doing multiple shoots around the world because as long as you've got access to the right talent in any given market, then what you can then do is you could you can shoot the American house and the British house and the Australian house and the Japanese house all all in the same day in the same environment. And so you know, and I think you know, just building on something Justin said about you know what gets opened up the possibility on virtual production. Imagine that one of your biggest costs as a client is um, talent. So if you're getting a superstar celebrity in and you've only got eight hours of their time, then you really want to maximise that eight hours. If all you're getting out of that is a 30-second TVC and a behind-the-scenes, then again, you've missed a great opportunity. What, you know, we, we've got multiple examples where we brought celebrities in and we filmed them in four, five, six different environments during the course of the day, hugely multiplying the, the, the investment that you've made in that person's time. Mm. You know, the more you think about it, you know, in any given you know, retail you talked about, um, you know, CPG, I think it's very obvious. Automotive, it's very obvious. Technology, it's very obvious. I think, you know, I just think the use cases just write themselves, really. So I get the argument that there is there is efficiency and scale here, and this is to both of you, I like your views on this, efficiency and scale. The risk here is, is it cost out and we start to get to vanilla? If everyone's doing the same thing and it's a rush to efficiency, are we in danger here of just seeing lots of really bland shit coming into the market as much as it might be cleverly done? How do we avoid that? Is that going to come? I would push back on that. So I just don't see. I don't, I don't see why that would follow. I don't think anybody working in feature films at the moment is saying, "Oh shit, I need to work with virtual production, so I can't produce something amazing." Mm. I don't see this sort of commoditization approach. I see opportunities are opened up. Anything a creative imagines can be brought to life. Mm. So I, I think that's exciting. I don't think it's going to lead to vanilla work. And actually, the effectiveness point is, again, I, I think we're more likely to get vanilla or repetitive work if we stick to sort of old manual ways of, of doing things. And, you know, because and then, then you're constrained by time and you're constrained by budget and, um, and things, are, you know, it, people might tend to work in a traditional way. I think, I think if, we, if we use innovation to fuel creativity, then actually the work should be better and we should be able to... So what you're not talking about life. then, I'll give you an example. We, said, we were talking about this earlier. What you're not talking about then is an example I saw a couple of years ago from a media agency. It might have even been inside WPP, I'm not saying. But it was an, an automated assembly of different creative components to based on a brief of a target market and uh, they pulled different visual components. It was, it was a still ad, but essentially the machines were doing pulling bits and based on we want to target person X. You're not talking about that then, Richard, and even Justin. This is not what we're talking about where there's the automated assembly of components that are based on uh, machines getting a brief. So sometimes we are talking about that, but it's not in the way that you imagine. Right. So it's not about, it's not about you know, 
insert image A and insert copy B, again, where it will feel very clunky and, and all the rest of it. It's we, We've got tools that allow us to intelligently produce content across, it, you know, take a really simple example of a piece of online advertising that has to appear in, you know, a thousand different 10,000, 20,000 different variations. Yeah, absolutely, we'll automatically compile that and you can change things like, you know, car colour, you can change. But you can also change, you know, again, using using AI-driven techniques, you can change the crops. You can get something which feels more human and, and, and focuses on people or you can get something that feels more technical and focuses on features. The speed that that technology is changing is off the scale. So I think, you know, people have in their mind a sort of, you know, let's produce, you know, five different versions of this advert in order to, to target five different audiences. It's so much more sophisticated than that now. And if you want to, you know, if we want to produce work which is going out into the market, which talks to people in a way that feels relevant in the channel they're in and which feels natural to them, then then we do need to produce, you know, millions of different variations. Much less as we move into the post-cookie world, based on knowing who you are as an individual, more taking contextual cues, taking, you know, things like time of day, things like what the what people are doing at any point in time, you know, where they are, you know, so you know, what cohort they're in, what other interests they have. And so so it's much less about personally identifiable information and it's much more about taking contextual cues to find work which shows up in a better way. But at the other end of it, we're also super excited about, you know, taking all of the machines away from it, if you like, because if we're looking at channels like TikTok, then you need to produce that work in a way that is authentic to TikTok. And so that's about getting people filming stuff with iPhones and, and, you know, coming up with ideas which which really work in TikTok. So, So it's not just about recutting everything for different platforms in a way which, you know, puts the message in the first one second and features the brand on there for two seconds and all of these very formulaic rules. It's, mm. a, it's about, you know, so if we use efficiency to make sure that we don't have people manually resizing every online banner, then what that frees up is time and budget to put back into a whole bunch of people. Well, I was going to ask, making, what, what does it free TikToks. up? What is the um, the cost uh, benefit to this and what, what are brands doing with it? Are they really reinvesting back in? And then also, then finally, we want to cover, so what happens to the humans and what happens to creative agencies? I'm fascinated by this. So to the first point, cost out. So I'd like two perspectives. One is the global perspective on, on it, but why are brands doing this other than what are they doing with the savings? Is there savings? If you're sitting there as a CMO at the moment, you've got an impossible job because you've got, you've got a virtually unlimited requirement for the amount of content that you need to produce and per, uh, yeah, mass personalise all of these different channels You've got to talk to your audiences in ways you've never spoken to them before and produce volumes of content. And so I think it just becomes a necessity. I don't think it's a question of sort of taking a decision, do do I take this $10,000 saving and reinvest it in making? It's simply, this is all of the content that I need to produce. The only possible way of doing that is by using some tools of automation, by using some some process efficiency, potentially by using some offshoring, by using some AI. to. So all of those repetitive manual tasks are capable of being automated, linking it to the second part of your question, what we believe is that the future for the, you know, without being too grandiose for the human race in general, but certainly for our industry, is the marriage of all of those things which are uniquely human, that human craft and creativity and those things and and human psychology and things that will never be replaced by machines. And so we're doubling down on creativity and craft and all of those human aspects and combining that with technological innovation um, because that technology creates new possibilities and, and new ways of bringing that work to life. And so, you know, if I've got kids at university and you know, they're going in two very different directions, 
Um, we've got a son who's all about the humanities and all of those things that, you know, if you like, the right brain thinking, and then a daughter in computer science. And they seem to be two very sensible paths to go down. I don't think if you're starting your career at the moment, you want to be doing something that you can see is going to be automated in five years time. And so so our, our view is that for everyone working in our business and for everyone in, in the industry, it's a super exciting time because there's the opportunity to not spend your time doing repetitive manual tasks, but to do things which really you came in the industry to do strategy planning creativity craft mm. or using technology and innovation and really you know thinking about all of the exciting things going on in that world so we're we're super optimistic well, hogarth's about got five thousand humans still right you've still got five thousand humans floating around so the machines haven't quite got you yet Richard. <laughs> what's your take justin on on all this yeah i mean the the the, the problem that we're solving is what you know, Richard just described, which I'll simplify, they, they've got to create more for less. Yeah, The budgets are flat at best, but they've got to, to get more out of those marketing budgets for credit. Well, they've got to get, create more content from those marketing budgets, which are now being used to fund, you know, data, MarTech, ad tech, whatever else. And it's not, a, it's not a little bit more for less. It's exponentially more, thousands percent increase. Whatever. So you can't do that with a tweak. It requires a total transformation. And so it's re-engineering process, changing how clients brief, changing how they operate internally, changing their ecosystem of sort of agencies and suppliers, challenging the mindset from sort of making content for channel to thinking modular. And, you know, what what I think this is about and, and the approach we're taking is we're trying to recalibrate where effort or human effort is centered, if you like. So we've identified streams that can be done by the machine to free up capital for the humans. Um, and the other way you can look at that is think about the sort of purchase funnel. Um, so at the bottom of the funnel, when we're looking at sort of performance, yeah, that's where we think the machine can really help sort of reuse, remix and construct the ads, freeing up human capital to create more engaging, disruptive, differentiated um, content to sort of draw people into the audience. So, so it's recalibrating effort. And again, just one more analogy is one of the things we're seeing here, we've got a lot of retail clients here and we're seeing a huge increase in demand for, if you like, product photography or product content, e-commerce content. And not only do they want now to make sure that every product is on the website, but they want elevated product content. And again, you go back, there is no more budget to do this. So you have to look at, you know, one thing we're doing a lot of is we're looking at, right, how can we bring down the cost of producing a catalog because you know, everyone knows that the catalog will not be here in five years' time. So how do we just get cost out of catalog to free up money to enable us to get better product content, 360s, videos for their websites? So again, that's, that's your classic dual transformation, cost out to enable us to invest in better quality e-commerce assets to drive growth and drive more sales. Got it. So it's not necessarily, and this be the truth, this is primarily across the board that the, the efficiencies and savings that are coming are being reinvested in the product or in, in content elsewhere. It's just being redirected, if you like, rather than taken out. Yeah, and, and yeah, think about, and I don't know if we've got time to go, think about whatever you want to call it, the metaverse or Web3, but there isn't a CMO that I'm talking to that isn't starting to sort of think about how, what implication does that have on their business? How are they going to show up in this new world? Again, there is no additional budget for them to get into that world. So, so something's got to give, but I think there's plenty of stuff in terms of the future, whether it's um, you know, omni-channel personalization, whether it's, if you like, always on con- product content or social content, whether it's Web3 in the metaverse, every brand that we're talking, in, yeah, they're not all trying to get into all three of those areas, but there's usually one or two of those things that, uh, that CMOs are thinking about. 
I think what's unique in terms of how we go to the market is the ability to sort of bring the efficiency and the effectiveness together through what we call solution design, through sort of production strategy, through transformation and whatever. And it's that piece of, tra- you know, to give you, I think I said to you earlier that you know, Suncorp is a client that you've seen we've picked up. Now, that's that's 10 brands, 10 sophisticated sort of market-leading brands. You know, we've been, we're eight months in to a transformation before we've started making work. So, yeah, we have, we have a transformation team. Suncorp put a transformation team in place to re-engineer how they go about creating content. And, and that was a significant investment they made to ultimately set them up for delivering more for less. So, Richard, uh, well, two things. You actually cleverly avoided my first the question, which I said, what's the efficiency gain here percentage-wise? So, typically, what do some of these programs do? Is it a 20%, 30% improvement in, in what you get for what you're paying? Or how do we quantify this? I think the only way to quantify it is by performance. I think, you know, the industry has always had this sort of fetishized the moment of creation, i.e. how many assets are we producing? What's the cost per asset? That's no longer a relevant construct because instead of producing one asset, you might be producing 10,000, 100,000, a million. So, so it's not, that's not the relevant measure. The relevant measure is how is the work performing? And so, so from our point of view, you know, when we look at things like our addressable content practice, our partnership with Group M, we get hard results coming off the back of that, and we can tell clients, you know, and, and advise clients where to invest their media dollars, where to where to invest their, their creative dollars, because because we can see hard results coming off the back of that. Increasingly, this right. isn't an efficiency conversation; it's a performance conversation. Those two things are very strongly linked. But you know, we are seeing uplifts of 20, 30, 40 percent in in performance, and that's what clients are really interested in, and that that's mm. what all, all of this stuff can drive. So. I don't think it's any more relevant to think about what is the saving in terms of hours or cost per asset is simply about, you know, how is this work becoming more effective and how am I, how am I driving better results? Okay, two final questions. The future of a creative agency then. What do they end up doing? Are you it? Is Hogarth what agencies will look like? I think there's a really strong future for creative agencies. I think, you know, it's doubling down. I think clients need brilliant creative ideas brought to life. I think what what we see, you know, we've always had strong partnerships with with creative agencies across the entire industry, and we absolutely see I that. I reckon they probably hate continuing. you. Actually, I don't reckon they'll like you very much. Actually, but but anyway, <laughs> well, I still want to know, like, what you know, you're saying there's still a role, but it's, it's sort of further up the food chain in terms of ideas development, and not in the in the execution and production components. Well, if we take a typical hybrid model, something like the the global model that we're using with Coca-Cola at the moment, there are essentially three aspects to that. The first one of those is, if you like, traditional primary production. That's, that's big ideas coming from big creative agencies that then need making in somewhat of a traditional way, if you like. And so so that's where we partner with creative agencies and their role is what it's always been. And and again, you know, that work which wins at Cannes, that, ma- that, that amazing, you know, expansive, expressive work will still be coming out of that process. There are then, as with, we're seeing with all of our clients, that, you know, for, for want of a better word, that there are these big content hubs around the world. And the, the role for the creative agency doesn't disappear at that point. Um, that, that's where we're very closely embedded with, you know, so, so creative plus production plus media plus social all sitting together to constantly think right. about how these big brand ideas are brought to life in different channels for different audiences at different times for different occasions. And then the big efficiency play, which allows those two first things to happen, is, you know, the global transcreation or global adaptation, all of that work, which we do, you know, in offshore locations using greater degrees of automation. So actually, 
you know, what, what that says to me is the work that creators really want to be thinking about, which is the big brand ideas and how those ideas come to life in different channels, different audiences, is completely integrated with us. And, and so, you know, I think there are huge opportunities for creative firms. I think, I, think the, I think the partnership is super important because what we've got, which is, you know, I, I think increasingly the ability to make work is, is, is super important and to understand how work gets made is super important. And, and that, that's what we bring to the party. And, um, and, and so, you know, this sense I talked about earlier about bringing, creating and making closer together is, um, you know, so we're, we're very optimistic about what that means for, for us as a business, but we're also optimistic about what that means for creativity in general and therefore for the role of the creative agencies in this world. Justin, do you share the global boss's view on this? What do you think about, well, in Australia, is it, are we a little bit more feral here and we're not going to comply with, with Richard's um, worldview? I'm mostly in agree. I better be careful since he's here in town, but um, I mostly <laughs> agree. But I mean, let me firstly give you an analogy that, to keep it simple, I, I use an analogy of architects, engineers, and builders. And if you sort of think about that analogy in, the, in building a house, if you don't have a great architect, you get a pretty traditional standard house. And, and in sort of creating great advertising, I think you need great architects. And for me, the creative agency is very much the architect. Um, and, and where we are challenging them a little bit is I think Hogarth are great engineers and builders. And the partnership between the architect and the engineer is critical. So when you're prototyping, if you like, a new campaign, you're creating a piece of film, the architect and the, and the engineer are typically on site together, you know, problem solving, creating that initial sort of piece of advertising. But if you think, follow the analogy through, the architect is not on site every single day as the house is being constructed. Um, and, and that's the sort of, I think there's a slightly new way of working where there are clearer handoff points. And yes, and then there may be times where if we need to extend the house or we've come up against an engineering problem, we might reconsult with the architect. But I don't think um, we, we need to continue to operate where the architect is overseeing and babysitting the builder, if you like. So, yeah, I think... Got it. Now, to take your analogy a bit further, though, Justin, it would mean you'd, you could argue that there is a whole lot less architects than there are builders. And at the moment, in this industry, there's a lot more architects floating around that we may not need. So we won't go there. I won't put you on the spot on this one, but it sounds to me like there's going to be a, still a role, but a contraction in what creative agencies do now if they are the architects. That's another four-hour conversation. Yeah, well, just one build on that is, I mean... So yes, but what we are talking about with, uh, to Richard's point around sort of virtual production, we actually need bigger, longer, you, you know, I said Lee, modular, we need modular brand platforms that can go long and deep. We actually need those architects to give us those big, long-standing, deep brand platforms. So actually, there is a real need for bigger, bolder, longer brand campaigns that we as the engineers and builders can take long and deep. So I actually think um, what I'm experiencing here is the clients wanting the creative agencies to move up. Um, and there is a huge demand for sort of great strategic and creative thinking. But there is a, you know, as you say, there's a slightly different handoff point and partnership between that thinking and the execution of those ideas. Well, I think you're both walking the plank quite well at the moment in terms of how you're managing relationships with your sister agencies in WPP. So well done. You're holding, you're holding the fort there. Final, final question. In housing, offshoring, Richard, what do you make of all that? And what, there's a lot of it. We're seeing a lot of it happening. It's kind of hybrid, but what's going on there? So we, we've always had this way that we think about our business that we describe as being on-site, off-site, offshore. And, and so 
What, what, what we mean by that is there's certain work that needs to, on-site that needs to be close to the client, culturally relevant, close to the consumer. And for that, we, we have, you know, we often have teams on-site with our clients working very closely alongside their brand managers, working alongside their creative agencies and media partners sometimes there. And so, so you know, we don't see a huge trend to sort of in-housing core creativity, but we do see lots of teams co-located, co-creating with our clients and our partners. And then the offsite part of our business is, is centres of excellence focused around specific disciplines and craft excellence, things like CG studios or, or, um, or, or primary production or post-production studios or specialist digital setups and all the rest of it. And so leaning in, so those on-site or those in-house content, leaning into true areas of, of expertise supported by offshore, which is all of that work, which is more capable of commoditization, we're actually getting that done using, you know, cost arbitrage and in, in uh, lower cost environments is, is you know, is, a, is the most relevant consideration because we can get the right quality of work without that being, you know, done in expensive cities or, or on client locations. So, so our view right. of the world hasn't really changed through all of that. that that's the way we thought about okay. our business for many years now. And Justin, finally, that's the same in Australia and the appetite here. There's a lot happening here, though, at the moment. There's a lot of it's a lot brewing. Yeah, no, and we, I mean, I, can, I reckon about half of our client base have got in-house in-house offerings, and we're positioning ourselves, if you like, as partners and partners of those in-house sort of offerings and, and helping to sort of elevate those offerings, if you like. So we spend a lot of time going back to that sort of transformation and sort of consulting piece. We spend a lot of time trying to work out where it makes sense for it to stay in-house, where it may be better managed on-site or off-site or offshore, if you like. So we're, we're not fighting it. And there are challenges within housing. And one of the ones we're finding, and we have experience with a couple of clients, is clients have gone out and hired their own in-house teams only to find that technology has crept up and those teams are no longer fit for purpose. So they've now got the chat. I mean, there is so much innovation coming into this industry that the danger of in-housing is the talent you hire are going to be redundant, or you're going to, you know, or the roles are going to be redundant? You're going to need different talent, and also, have you got the the scale to upskill and train these people in new ways of working in new platforms? So I think we, we understand the need, and then I think what's driving it is the more for less challenge, because obviously in housing is you know on on paper feels cheaper than <laughs> outsourcing, but I think when you think about peaks and troughs and, and optimizing resource capability and capacity the ability to sort of attract and retain the best creative talent i think there are a whole number of challenges within housing that um, on-siting might actually um, offer a better a better solution to well look we're going to have to wrap this up richard glasson justin ricketts fascinating conversation we should do a a 55 part series i think but um listen we'll leave you to um change the world and cgi and all the other fascinating things that are going on with content thanks for joining great conversation stay safe thank you thanks paul good talking to you This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's more. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.